Let's continue our study on the precursors of Advent, God's last covenant word before the advent of Christ from the book of Malachi. I'll invite you this morning to turn with me. Our first scripture reading will be from Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16, and then we'll flip a few pages over to Luke 1, for 1 verse, Luke 7, 1 verse 72. But we'll begin with Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughters of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you had been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. And then we'll turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 72, to orient our focus for our message this morning. This is from Zechariah's prophecy, Luke 1, verse 72. Verse 72, Zechariah says of the incarnation to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Here ends the reading of God's word this morning. May we receive it with a believing heart. Beloved congregation, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ into this world, born of the Virgin Mary, placed in that manger in Bethlehem, has always been God's plan. The angels, the shepherds, no room in the end, has been in the mind of God since the beginning. The Bible tells us before the foundations of the world were even laid, God planned to send His Son for you. All the way back in Genesis, God promised, we already saw this morning, but it bears repeating, God promised to send Jesus, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promised, we often call this a covenant, he made a covenant to send Jesus. 
And God never forgets his promise. Now, people do forget their promises, don't we? Dad can forget to pick you up from baseball practice. Your boss can conveniently forget that he promised to give you a raise. Our politicians seem to always forget the promises made on the campaign trail. We forget our promises. And what we see from our passage this morning is that we can be forgetful too. Humans can forget even the most important of promises, that being the marriage promise and the promises we make to our families. I trust you are all familiar with the Christmas carol that says it's the most wonderful time of the year. Yet for many of us, Christmas is the worst time of the year. The holiday season can remind us that we are a broken people who have broken families who live in a broken world. And what we see in Malachi's third speech, God addresses this morning broken families. You see in verse 11, men were making a choice to marry women outside of the covenant community who did not share their faith nor their upbringing. To further compound the issue, look at verse 14. They were divorcing their wives, leaving the women of their youth, the Jewish women of their youth, in order to marry these foreign women. They did this to ascend the social ladder. You can imagine that people coming out of exile who had no money, who had no status, who had no reputation, they looked to other nations which had the things they desired and they thought, what of it? I will get rid of my wife so that I might marry into another tribe and receive and advance and gain something materially in this world. What ended up happening is that they were forgetting the promises they made. They begin to use and abuse their wives. And Israel was filled with broken families. That's the setting. That's what Malachi is addressing. Addressing forgetfulness in marriage. Now he's going to remind us in this speech that God is intimately involved and the goal of marriage. And that for the broken families in Israel and for the broken families who are even here today, he points us to a deeper hope than a spouse. To a deeper hope than a whole family. He points them to a God who is always faithful to His promises, who remembers His holy covenant. He calls them to lift their eyes up to Advent, that there is one who is coming, who is a covenant keeper.
That's our theme for our time together this morning. In a faithless world, there is hope and grace for sinners. In God's faithfulness. Let's look just at two points this morning. Corrupt covenants covenants made and pure covenants broken. That's corrupt covenants made and pure covenants broken. Let's look first at corrupt covenants made. Malachi begins, look at this speech, with referring to the fatherhood of God. He begins, have we not all one father? Now God the Father is not just a New Testament concept. God is referred to as Father in the Old Testament about 15 times. And in a general sense, God is Father of all because He created all. But remember that Israel is described in the Bible as His firstborn child of grace. The firstborn child of grace. Remember when God commands Moses to go to Egypt and to let the Jewish people go and worship him in Exodus chapter 4, he says, say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. The prophet Isaiah, even twice after their exile, says of God in chapter Isaiah 63 and 64, you God are our father. Of course, famously in Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God is their father. And so if God is the father of everyone in Israel, in a very real sense, he is the father of the bride in all of their marriages. If God is the father of everyone in Israel, in a very real sense, he is the father of the bride in all of those marriages. And remember, it was common practice in the ancient world for a father to be intimately involved in the marriage of his children. We have examples in the Old Testament of dowries or bride prices when a father of the groom would negotiate with the father of a bride, the betrothal of that bride with gifts. If you turn to Genesis 24, you see this in the story of Isaac. When, they're, when Abraham's servant is looking for a bride for Isaac, in Genesis chapter 24, verse 53, we are told that the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah, and he also gave them to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. That's a dowry, a bride price. You see this also with Jacob and Rachel. He worked seven years for Rachel. Behold, it was Leah. Another seven years for Rachel. They're negotiating a price. And we have a similar practice today. I still think it's wise, young men, That before you ask your beloved to marry you, to go to her father and ask for his blessing and asking for her hand in marriage. You see, it should be clear what the problem is here. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? This is the breakdown of marriage. They are not interested in receiving the father's wisdom about who they should marry. They were happy to have God as Father when it came to religion, when it came to prayer, when it came to disciplining their children, but when it came to marriage, when it came to companionship, 
When it came to romance, we are not interested in what you have to say. It's like when we compartmentalize some sections of our life. God can be Lord over this, but not that. God, you can be Lord over my religion, my Sunday, but you can't be Lord over my Monday. So was it going on in Israel. They would allow God to be Lord over some things, but when it came to their marriage, their relationship, it belonged to them. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of, the foreign, of a foreign god. This is something that God explicitly rejects in the Old Testament. Now, it's not that God is racist. Or a more modern version of racism we might talk about today, it's not that God is a kinist, that you must only marry people of your own race. That's not what God is describing. But God is very clear in the Old Testament, we are to marry within the covenant community. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We see God's, you could say, rationale for restricting their marriages to the religion of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 3, he says, You shall not intermarry with them, foreign nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Now, if you're offended by that statement, look no further than Solomon, one of the wisest men in the history of the world, whose wives led this infatuated king to idolatry. This is why the prophet says they are faithless. This is why the prophet says they are profaning the covenant. Not just because they rejected Jewish women but they have rejected God's wisdom. They're rejecting God's purpose for marriage, which we'll get at in just a moment. And in so doing, they're putting themselves at risk of falling away from the one true religion. Well, brothers and sisters, this is still an issue of vital importance today. So much so, the Apostle Paul reiterates this teaching in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verse 14, when he says, Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Now, young people and singles, loneliness is hard. And I know for some of you, this is your greatest burden in life. I see you. I recognize that. And there is a great temptation when you don't find a spouse in the covenant community to begin to broaden your perspective. Cast the net a little wider into the world to see if you can find someone. The people of Israel must have rationalized it like this. Have you ever thought this way? It won't affect my worship. 
Why does it matter if I worship Yahweh and she worships Baal? If I'm able to personally maintain my faith, why does God care? Uh, Ian Duguid, a, a fine Old Testament scholar, says that God cares about who you marry because it will affect your marriage, it will affect your children, and it will affect your faith. It will affect your marriage, it will affect your children, and it will affect your faith. See, to be clear, the Bible is clear, to marry someone who does not share your faith will affect your marriage. See, the modern idea of love, that we all need someone to come home to, to share a meal with, to sit by the fire in peace, that's the idea of marriage. But marriage, according to the Scriptures, is so much more than this. Real marriage is not just sharing a home. Real marriage is sharing your life. Sharing your deepest longings. Your deepest aspirations. In marriage is where your struggles with sin are put on full display. And you pray together. And you seek God's grace for one another's sins. Paul says in Ephesians 5, marriage is best exemplified when it reveals and shows the gospel. And so Malachi says to marry someone outside the covenant is to share a life with someone who does not have true life. That's what verse 10 is referring to. Jews marrying idolaters from foreign nations. It will affect your marriage. Second, it will affect our children. Verse 15 says that God is seeking, what God is seeking in marriage is a godly offspring. Brothers and sisters, God loves a busy household. God loves when godly children produce more children. God delights when those children are presented before the congregation in baptism. He delights when they're present with you in worship. But when one parent is opposed to the gospel, it makes parenting so much harder. That analogy of being equally yoked is of a yoke of oxen striving together towards one goal. And if you want to strive towards bringing your children to that one goal, having dead weight is not going to get you there. You know, there's an application I want to bring out here before we even move on to the third, that marriage affects our faith. And it's one that I grew up with. Young women, especially those who are raised in the feminist age, where they say that staying home with children is less valuable than going to college or having a career, notice that God says, verse 15, that raising children is so important. When I was in high school, the idea of being a stay-at-home mom and raising children meant you were less of a woman. That you had less to offer this world, you're submitting to the patriarchy, but look at what God says here. If that is your desire, that is a good thing. This reminds me of God's words in Proverbs 31, 
where it talks about the woman who is to be praised. And what is her emphasis throughout that whole chapter? She is concerned with her household, her household, her household. And then it begins in verse 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. The surpassing beauty, the surpassing goodness that a woman can offer her family is to be concerned with godly offspring. What a beautiful thing God affirms here. It will affect your children who you marry. But the third and final, maybe most important thing is that marrying outside of the covenant affects our faith. I think you would all agree with me this morning that, a thriving, that in a thriving marriage, God must be the center of our lives. And He must be the focus of our families. If both spouses seek the Lord, they will be drawn together. That is the promise. But if the spouses have two different centers, two different worldviews, Inevitably, when one draws near to God, you must pull away from your spouse. This is what was happening in Israel. These men were forgetting the covenant of God. They were forgetting His promise. They were forgetting His salvation. And His gospel, His truth, is to be the center of our lives. This is a reminder for us that in marriage, the most important thing is not to climb the social ladder It's not to have rank, not even beauty. Let us be reminded, as it says in Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful and beauty is fading, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so it must be said, what are you prioritizing in looking for a spouse? Don't elevate secondary things to what's most important. Body shape, interests, hobbies, those are all secondary things. Faith is what's most important when assessing a prospective spouse. Remember to keep the goal of true marriage before your eyes always. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, union with God. Union with God. That's the corrupt covenants made. But there's a sadder reality even in this story. There are pure covenants broken. Pure covenants broken. See, the men in Malachi's day were not only dating and marrying the wrong women, but to compound the issue to even a greater degree, they were also divorcing the wives of their youth to do so. Even to this day, Divorce remains one of the clearest examples of people not taking covenants seriously. We live in an epidemic of broken covenants. It is estimated today, according to uh, one study I looked at, that 50% of marriages end in divorce. Now, of course, that number is skewed because that's counting second, third, fourth, fifth marriages. But many many marriages end in divorce. 
with the average length of those marriages, according to this study, being only eight years. I hasten to think that everyone in this room has been touched by the brokenness that comes with divorce. And the hurt. And that we might feel like the people in Malachi, looking to Advent with broken families. How are we to understand divorce biblically? And I want to bring to you a few Old Testament and New Testament passages in light of these verses here to help us understand it. See, it should be said at the outset that the Old Testament did not institute divorce. The Old Testament does not institute divorce. By the time we get to Moses and his teachings on this subject, the first five books of the Bible, divorce was already being practiced in the ancient world. There are no laws in the whole Old Testament that teach or approve of divorce, but nor does the Old Testament entirely prohibit divorce. Except in a few circumstances, extreme circumstances, we see in Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 19, where a man seeks to divorce his wife under false pretenses, and Moses says to that man, you may never divorce her all the days of your life. But what we see then is that divorce is never encouraged, but it is regulated in the Old Testament. I need you to grasp that this morning. It is never encouraged, but it is regulated. Now allow me to be as clear as I can possibly be. The Bible teaches with crystal clear voice that God's goal and his design for marriage is permanence. God's goal and design for marriage is permanence. If you turn to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is very helpful uh, on this passage. In Matthew 19, verse 8, when he is asked by the Pharisees, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 8, in the beginning it was not so. What is he saying here? He's saying that when God created Adam and Eve and they were married and he officiated that first wedding, when he made two people whole, they were never to be separated. This is God's goal and purpose in marriage, permanence. So then the Pharisees, to their credit, ask a very good question. Matthew 19, verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? You see that? But pay careful attention to Jesus' response. Jesus says, Moses allowed, not commanded. He regulated, not taught. Moses allowed because of your hardness of heart. I think Jesus' teaching here has a note of sadness in it. That our Lord 
with sadness recognizes that marriages can be broken because of sin. Marriages can be broken because of sin. We are not Roman Catholics who teach that marriage is this eternal thing. It's one of the sacraments. You can never get a marriage, or a marriage, you can never get divorced when you're married. This is why they have that process of annulment rather than divorce. They're they're saying that there's something divine about marriage. And while we recognize that a three-strand cord is not easily broken and that God must be present, we also need to recognize that marriage is an earthly covenant. There will not be marriage in heaven, Jesus tells us. There will not be people given in marriage in heaven. It is on earth, it's given to us on earth, between two humans, and the sad reality is, is that sin can destroy. And so the Bible presents two grounds for divorce. Specifically the sin of adultery. Is such a sin that can destroy that covenant? And then we also see in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he talks about abandonment as something that can destroy that covenant. And so when Moses is regulating divorce in the Old Testament, he is recognizing that we live in a fallen world. He does not encourage it. He recognizes that sin can and often does destroy our relationships. He doesn't bless that. And he recognizes that in the culture where men held all of the power, it often meant that their wives, that the women of the old covenant, were abandoned and discarded. That was the context of the Lord Jesus' teaching. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason, the Pharisees ask? Because there were people in that day who would divorce their spouse over you know, silly things. Burning the meal. That's it. I'm done with you. And so what Moses does in Deuteronomy 24 in regulating divorce is he is actually seeking to protect the vulnerable. He is seeking to protect the vulnerable. Today, when a woman is abused or used, uh, they will move out, get an apartment, try to rebuild their lives. This wasn't an option in the ancient world. But when Moses regulates divorce in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, he says she cannot do all those things, but what she can do is be remarried. He does not command. He does not endorse. But by affording the woman, the the offended party, a certificate of divorce and an opportunity to remarry, what he is saying is that God cares for the weak. God cares for the disenfranchised. He cares for the cast-offs of Israel. This is why it says, the old King James Version, verse 16, God hates divorce. Our ESV translates it differently. 
For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. It translates it differently because the object seems to be that the man is doing the hating, not the Lord doing the hating. The Lord is saying, it's as if you've given up on the weak, the one I care for. He cares for the weak. And in divorce, the regulation of an, old, an ancient practice, God is saying, I neither bless it nor encourage it, but if it happens because of sin, may the offended and vulnerable party have this option. He cares for the weak. And he still does in Malachi's day. Men were divorcing their wives for no good reason. They were being faithless to their covenant commitments. They were pursuing their own goals and social benefits rather than loving and protecting their wives. Verse 14, The Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. They were being faithless. Marriage was supposed to be lifelong. They were supposed to strive towards the goal. They were supposed to submit their personal goals and preferences and desires to Him. But they didn't. And it's the offended party, or the offending party, I must say, that will have to give an account before the Lord. Marriage is hard, brothers and sisters. And even the good marriages have bad days, don't they? And so I want to say to you this morning, if you are struggling in your marriage, cry out for help. Guys, gentlemen, there is nothing wrong with seeking counseling when you have a problem. It is more manly, I think, to ask for help when you need it than to wait too long when it can no longer be repaired. And you see the goal of marriage? God makes that clear in verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? That's the goal of marriage, that there would be oneness. What was the, what was the one God was seeking? Godly offspring, so that they would have children. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That's faithfulness to the Lord. Faithfulness to His Word. These are the things God wants for us. And we can do it in the power and the Spirit of Christ. If you are struggling, reach out to the Lord. Reach out to your pastor, your elders, and get the counseling you need. We've dealt with some challenging topics today. Singleness, broken covenants, divorce. We would do well to note that God speaks these words would not merely words of warning and challenge, but he also brings hope and grace. See, in our incarnation of Christ, we know that Christ knows what it means to be lonely. Our God, we are told in the Bible, even knows what it means to be trapped in a bad marriage. In fact, Jeremiah 3 God tells us how he sent away the northern kingdom of Israel with a certificate of divorce. Jeremiah 3, verse 38. 
and how Judah, his bride, persisted in her, in her adulterous ways. In other words, God knows what it means to be cheated on, and he knows what it feels like to be betrayed. And in a human marriage, when there is always failures on both sides, this is not the case with God. The Lord was always a perfect husband to Israel. He was always good to Judah. But her disobedience was so persuasive, even God at one point throws up his hands and says, the marriage is dead. But yet as Zechariah prophesied this morning, Luke 1, verse 72, he has shown the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. And as the prophet Hosea teaches, even though they cheated on him and abandoned him, God pursues his faithful bride into the wilderness and buys her back. That's Hosea 3. Every day we provide sufficient cause for God to leave us and to throw us aside. But at the end, in the incarnation, God doesn't let go. This is the goal of Christ's incarnation. His journey from heaven to the stable of Bethlehem was central to God's pursuit of His bride. Jesus endured the cold and the heat, the frustration and the ridicule, and in the end, we crucified Him. And yet, He loves. And yet, He marries. Ian Duguid puts it this way, yet the Father invites us, stained and defiled as we are, to wed His Son. And the Son promises that He will never divorce us. God is faithful, even when we are faithless. In summary, we like Israel often fail in marriage and divorce. And sometimes God allows that. This Christmas season, you may be broken and hurt, but this passage is another comfort. Though other people forget the covenant, he does not. God promises to come alongside broken families, to lead them in the way of repentance and faith. Divorce and sexual sin are sin, but Jesus died to redeem us from sin. Divorce and broken families are not the unforgivable sin. He died to redeem you and whatever sin you're struggling with. And let us remember that he is the great and perfect husband that the bride of Christ needs. In your brokenness, look to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that in the incarnation you restore not only our religious life, you restore us not only to the true teaching of your word, as Malachi has already taught us, but you can also restore broken families in the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that though others may forsake us, you never will. 
We pray, Lord, that you would be with those who are hurting and broken this Sunday morning, this Christmas season. We pray that you would restore them in the light of Christ's grace. Draw us near to yourself and comfort us by the power of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.